gets harder and harder for people to say, you know, it's just the Europeans are doing this research. When Africans themselves are doing research and publishing, and I see that happening a lot. There's been some amazing African scholars who are commissioned out there. But it's a difficult moment, and you have a kind of pushback from people who don't want social change. Hello, this is Christian Brothers Podcast, where we discuss the innovative, the daring, and the bold in regards to black LGBT issues and topics while providing informative information. And we have uh, a very special guest, and I'm actually glad he came onto the show, uh, Mr. Mark Epracht. He is the professor in the Department of Global Development Studies at Queen's University, Canada. Uh, he's consulted and published extensively on the history of gender and sexuality in Africa. Uh, so this is, for me, uh, kind of a treat, not a mental treat. One, I'm a fan of history. And two, to have an actual historian who is actually divulged into this topic is extremely, extremely um, exciting to me. So I do, do appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, you know, one of the first questions that come to my mind is when it comes down to coming and divulging into this particular topic, what made you, uh, what sparked the interest to go in this particular lane of history in particular? Right. Well, um, I landed in Zimbabwe. I mean, I lived there before in the 80s, and um, then I was fortunate enough after I got my PhD to land a job at the University of Zimbabwe in 1995. And um, I just landed there, basically, uh, and no sooner was I getting settled in than the president of the country started uh, these speeches. Uh, denouncing gays and lesbians as uh, you know, worse than uh, dogs and pigs and that sort of thing, right? And um, and uh, it just went on and on. It seems to me like really weird because it's not as if there was a big gay scene in Harare, right? Uh, right. picking on them, and, and particularly the thing that struck me as as very odd was um, well, two things. Number one, that he linked it directly to kind of Western colonialism and cultural influence. Um, and then the other thing was, like, sort of unlike in North America, where you have sometimes, anyways, uh, kind of right-wing politicians who uh, who whip up uh, kind of demagogic feelings around uh, hatred of sexual minorities. I think that's probably fair to say, right? Yes. Um, here in, in Zimbabwe, I mean, uh, it wasn't really working that way. It was making people really uncomfortable. So it wasn't a natural vote-getting kind of gambit. So um, uh, when he went out to the rural areas, for example, and I, I was doing some research out there from before and had friends out there, and he asked them, you know, is there something that makes you want to support your president more because he's dating uh, gays and lesbians? And he said, no, no, no. Of course, we know there were gays and lesbians here before. Um, we just didn't want to talk about it. Gotcha. So it's embarrassing to have this political figure. Uh, it's embarrassing to him. It's uh, embarrassing to us. So it, it wasn't kind of the typical um, homophobia that you would expect in, say, whatever, if I can say, you know, Kansas or something like that. But So that's what got me interested. And so, so the people themselves, I mean, how long would you say it it really took for a place like Zimbabwe to to really kind of accept the idea that uh, sexual fluidity or being gay was wrong. But did it take a, a good amount of years to really entrench in people's minds? Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a it's a complicated question. I think you know I wrote 
a number of books about it because I yes. thought, I'll tell you, when I started on this, I thought, well, I'm going to write one small article because it's going to be so easy to show that uh, the president of Zimbabwe is wrong in his claims. Right? But once I started doing the research, I found actually it's uh, it's complicated. Um, and you can't just look at Zimbabwe in isolation from the other countries around there because there's a lot of movement, right? People, he talked about fluidity. People moved like crazy. They would walk a couple thousand kilometers to take employment, you know, whatever. Um, so there was no kind of traditional culture a long, 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 long time back. Um, so, uh, but having said that, um, there was an acceptance that not everyone fit into the ideal citizen kind of, uh, you know, that you marry and you have children and, uh, and that's kind of the ideal. That's taken for granted. That's the norm. Everyone's supposed to do that. But the, um, you know, there was a kind of uh, popular wisdom that not everyone quite fit. Um, and therefore, there were cultural means to explain those people who didn't conform to the model. And some of those, uh, you know, some of them you would say were kind of uh, joking and some were um, accommodating and some were actually celebratory, you know. And I'll give one example. It's kind of like the, uh, the two-spirit uh, people here in North American um, um, First Nations people, right, where uh, a man, uh, you know, with a male body may have a female spirit. Uh, right. It could be an right. spirit. It could be, it could be a really respected ancestor from hundreds of years ago. And uh, that person obviously couldn't marry across uh, the, uh, to, to uh, that man with a female spirit couldn't marry a woman. And likewise, it went the other way, right? It could be a Female-bodied person with a male spirit right. could never marry a man, right? So uh, there were ways to explain this, and those people were highly regarded, right? And and no one would say, okay, that's a gay person. That, so that that understanding, that tolerance was there within the cultural framework, right? So there was no such thing as someone coming out and saying, hey, look, I'm I'm gay, and I want to uh, be out in the sense in the modern sense. That so that wasn't there, but gotcha. it was under that if people could be uh, uh, discreet with their sexuality, and by the way, discretion applied into uh, heterosexual relations as well. It's not something that people would come out and, and talk about. So all of that was there in, in a traditional setting, um, where the kind of Mugabe's, that's the president of, of Zimbabwe, where his homophobia comes from, you know, um, it's it's complicated, but he was educated by Catholic missionaries, and it uh, really was a strong influence uh, of the Christian mission to convert Africans to be so-called civilized, right? And that meant, among other things, boys are boys and girls are girls, right? And um, there was a very strong um, message in how to be a proper man, how to be a proper woman, and no ambiguity allowed, right? So that's part of the colonial... Uh, Christian mission that was very uh, successful in the Zimbabwe case. You know, how... Well, well, first of all, let me just give something to our the listeners who actually are, are listening here. Uh, when it comes to uh, the, the books that you have written in regards to this particular topic, you've written uh, Sexuality and Social Justice in Africa, Rethinking Homophobia and Forging Resistance. Um, you've also written with sexual, sexual Diversity in Africa, Politics, Theory, and Citizenship. Uh, heterosexual 
Africa, question mark, the history of idea from the age of exploration to the age of AIDS. And you've also written, um, help me pronounce it if I'm saying it correctly, Hungonchani, the second edition, the history of dissident sexuality in Southern Africa. That's just some of, some of the books that you have written. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, Hungonchani is the, uh, is Shona, that's the dominant language of Zimbabwe. Uh, that's the word that today is um, translated as uh, homosexual. Really? Hungochani. Yeah, but it's not uh, Hungochani, yeah. So um, the uh, part of that book there is crazy. Where does this word come from, right? Because uh, people who support Mugabe say, oh, no, you know, white people invented that word to discredit Africans kind of thing, right? I mean, seriously, the stuff people say. So I wanted to trace the word back uh, to find when did that word enter into usage. Um, and what I found was... Uh, it was connected to the, uh, this migrant labor system that uh, I mentioned, um, uh, whereby men would, would travel long, long distance, so leave their families behind in the rural areas and travel to work in the, the growing um, capitalist industrial economy. Most of that was centered in South Africa. Um, and there the men were housed in these gigantic male-only hostels, right? Um, in the early years, Johannesburg, the African population was like 95% male and 5% female, something like that. It's crazy, uh, imbalanced, right? So, um, that gave rise to a, a culture. You know, the men who would walk or however they got there would usually come accompanied with uh, younger, uh, well, actual boys in some cases or young men and as their kind of servants to carry stuff and whatever. And, and those people, um, often in the context of long periods there in the, uh, in this urban, uh, kind of nightmare, uh, became sexual partners as well. So the word Gachani originates to describe that relationship. And, um, it was kind of derogatory in the early, in the early periods. Um, and, uh, what's happened since 19, uh, basically 1990, uh, the first kind of gay and lesbian rights association was formed in Zimbabwe, called GAL, Gays and Lesbians in Zimbabwe. And, uh, they kind of, they took that word and they, they, uh, took ownership of it in a sense and made it, um, not, uh, derogatory, but, uh, by adding the prefix who, who, H-U, it um, implied uh, an essence or uh, a nature, not something conditional upon you know going to the mines or being a exploitative uh, older man, younger boy. Right, that was part of the derogatory uh, meaning there. So they've taken it and they put who, the Hungachani, okay. this of being gay, as like we're just people here. Wow, wow. You know, I mean. Um... You know the the part that sometimes I think, especially a lot of people in, uh, especially African Americans in America, we really we're very distant yeah. when it comes to knowing the history of Africa, in particular the LGBT, because we are constantly uh, being bombarded with information such as, oh, it's very un-African. It was introduced by uh, Europeans. Uh, this is something that is not of the African people and, you know, all these other things. 
that you know we're constantly being told about Africa, and the the parts that intrigued me to actually uh, look at your books, and it's because of the fact that wait a minute, how deep and how far does this really go beyond uh, Christianity, or either I should say before Christianity was introduced to Africa or some parts of Africa? I mean, what are what was some of the customs that was practiced? What was some of the things that was it considered to be wrong at all, or just simply just common? Um, yeah, well, okay, I'll just say, first of all, Africa is a really big place, so um, you can look around and you'll find, yeah, there's significant differences from here and there, and uh, and by the way, a lot of Africa is uh, Muslim, probably about a third of, of the continent is Muslim, including uh, much of um, Africa south of the Sahara. Um, and there are Christian civilizations there that predate European colonialism in Ethiopia, for example. So, um, uh, but even if you're just talking the so-called traditional cultures um, that weren't, um, uh, yeah, Muslim or or a pre-European missionary Christian, um, there's a huge diversity as well. So. Um, I wouldn't want to say, okay, there's one custom that you could find everywhere, but there are certain things that, yeah, you'll find the recurrent, and I mentioned the one, it's quite important. Uh, I think the, the idea of um, um, ancestors, like, I think it's a really common traditional belief um, uh, whereby, you know, when you die, that's not the end of you, right? You're still part of the community, right? And the ancestors are here in the village and, and wherever, right? So um, that that respect for ancestors, there's, there are languages where there's no word to differentiate between a, a living person and an ancestor. They're all part of the community. So that idea that a, an ancestor with a, a, you know, a spirit from a different physically embodied person from long back is in your body now uh, was pretty common. Interesting. Um, then there were other practices. I think you can look around. You know, there were uh, there were societies that were quite militaristic, um, and the young men would be organized into kind of age groups, right? And they lived together, they trained, they uh, went on raids for cattle. Sometimes they went on slave raids and hunting and all this kind of stuff. So they were very militarized. And in the number of studies that have been done on that, it was uh, probably fair to say common that uh, as older men would take younger men as uh, mentors, right? And uh, there was often a sexual relationship in that. There were other relations, like uh, a lot of African societies were also quite hierarchical, you know, with uh, with uh, royalty um, and um, very privileged aristocracy. And there again, you'd have um, probably fairly common um, instances where the, the elites would take um, basically slaves as uh, as their sexual toys. Gotcha. So there was there's all those things. But wow. the idea of a mutual uh, mutual kind of um, gay relationship that we think about as um, uh, pretty cool and something to aspire to in our own society today. Um, you know, those probably existed, but they wouldn't have been talked about. That was that's not something that people would um, 
except uh, if it was publicly identified. But that's not to say it didn't exist. It's just that we don't have records of that sort of thing. You know, when you speak of the records, uh, I was told that a lot of things were, especially within Africa, most of the things were mainly passed down verbally, not necessarily written. Was that something of, a, of an issue when it came down to pulling information of of this particular caliber to to be able to put in the books? Yes, that's a big, uh, it's a huge issue, um, and um, you know the. Historians who are working on this, they're cracking their heads open to how to get around it. And there's some interesting uh, ways to do that. In my case, what I did um, was uh, I tried to find the earliest documents available. And those were written by the European, uh, you know, the colonialists. So we're talking, going back to, in the case of Southern Africa, uh, basically the first ones were 18th century, right? They were Dutch at the Cape. And those would be cases where they, encountered um in the early dutch cases they were slaves and the dutch caught them sort of uh, you know in flagrante delicto and um, the dutch were pretty hard line in those days and they had uh, even death sentence for for um you know, what they called unnatural uh, unnatural lust uh, so there were a few cases like that and now in those court cases so you get a little bit of evidence obviously it's it's totally skewed, right? It's been written by the Dutch. It's not translated from the, the languages that the people uh, spoke, and um, all the homophobia and Christian lens, right? So it's it's not it's not the truth, right? Uh, but it does allow us to get a glimpse of the lives of uh, these slaves. And in my case, when talking about Zimbabwe, we're looking at the courts getting uh, set up in 1890, when the British uh, set up the colonial system there. And again, the same issue, like these are English-speaking people coming in, setting up a foreign legal system, and imposing laws where there were, there were uh, un, uh, unwritten traditions. And um, so there are all kinds of problems there, but like I said, it's still something. It gives us a glimpse into what the lives of people who were caught up in this system they got to defend themselves. They got to, um, you know, give their version of the events. And so, yeah, there's a there's a pretty good record. I found hundreds of cases from 1890 up until 1930 or so when I stopped. Um, and what's interesting is, in many cases, you know, um, the testimony of the men. And by the way, there were zero female female cases. The, the colonial state was not interested in that. At all, they didn't give it. <laughs> they it wasn't an issue to them. So um, the only cases involved uh, a male male, and that's because they feared it was potentially disruptive. You know, they needed cheap cheap labor, and they didn't want uh, um, you know the men to be getting into uh, arguments uh, about lovers and payments and this sort of thing. They wanted the men just to work, uh, don't drink too much, and behave yourself and go home at the end of the day, sort of thing. So they were a bit concerned uh, when they found these cases of uh, male-male uh, relationships, and they prosecuted them. So what's interesting is in many of those cases, uh, the men defended themselves. Uh, they would say, you know, I didn't know this was wrong, you know, <laughs> and they sometimes use language of, of course, this is normal. Uh, we older men uh, have power over younger men, and uh, 
and that's just the way it's always been. And and uh, and as long as we show uh, respect, like in these relationships, um, the older partner, the the husband, if you want to use that language, and they did themselves often talk about husbands and wives. Uh, the the husband takes uh, his uh, sexual gratification and gives gifts and shows respect to the the wife by that kind of moral uh, obligation of uh, of reciprocity. But there are there are but having said all that, there are um, you need to supplement this by doing oral interviews with people. And yeah, what. People don't remember back to 1641, right? And and hard, it's really hard to find uh, oral traditions that talk about any of this. But they are out there, you know. And I can say in the case of Zimbabwe, uh, there are um, uh, interviews with uh, uh, traditional um, spirit mediums, you know, um, who would say, yeah, we have a tradition in our little people here about, for example, this powerful uh, woman. Well... She had a female body, but she wasn't really a woman because she had this very powerful male ancestor. And, and you know, talking back to the 1700s, even people have memories of, uh, or uh, stories of this sort of thing. And one other uh, bunch of records that people are just starting to uh, to look into, you know, um, there is a written tradition pre-European uh, uh colonialism in a lot of Africa, that is uh, Muslim uh, jurisprudence in uh, um, what's now northern Nigeria, and there's there's a lot of material there where people are talking about uh, civil disputes or marital disputes and land and inheritance, and it's starting to come out. You know, there are cases where um, there were uh, same-sex relations that are discussed in that Arabic language um, uh, documentation. And finally, um, out of Ethiopia, there's another non-European written language that goes back, you know, thousands of years. And again, it's starting to people are starting to go through that systematically and say, "Wow, you know, here are cases." Um, and I'm thinking off the top of my head, uh, uh, so it's Christian, right? And they had a very strong. Um, um, a tradition of interpreting biblical stories, Old Testament kind of stuff, and they had saints. And uh, some of these saints were uh, very interesting characters and kind of conform again to that model of uh, like a female, a powerful uh, female saint who led her people and and, uh, and never married and that all that sort of thing. So there are documents, uh, but um, you have to piece together those together with uh, you know, kind of oral traditions, ethnographic type of research, uh, and all that. Yeah, so it's it's not uh, easy work, but it's um, fascinating. I'm thinking to myself when it comes to different parts of Africa, different countries that you explored in. How many countries within Africa that you found this type of history uh, to be to be within? I mean, because uh, there's tons of countries within Africa, uh, but you know, is there any particular? In particular, was it part of the southern area, the northern area, the central? What areas did you find was this quite common than what most of the world may know? Well, uh, so my research started in Zimbabwe. I had to follow uh, the path of the men, in some cases, back to where they came from. Like in, um, in the Zimbabwe case, they were coming from Malawi. 
uh, or Zambia, and they came here to work, and then they often traveled on to South Africa, uh, Mozambique. So there's this huge migrant labor system. So I followed the path of these men to wherever I could, probably about 10 countries altogether. Everywhere I went, um, it's kind of the same stories are emerging. And in the period since I started this research, and that's really 95, um, pretty well every single African country has um, has got a gay, lesbian, trans, bi, uh, intersex association in some form. And where those appear, one of the first things uh, people do is try and get a sense of history in their own country, even if it's the most homophobic uh, leadership you can imagine in a place like Nigeria and and also a very powerful influence of the Christian uh, uh, church in a homophobic way and um, uh, kind of hardline Islam is getting in place. Uh, you think, okay, Nigeria is a, a serious uh, uh, hostile environment, but even there, uh, now it's coming out, well, there are subcultures uh, where it's, uh, we would say they're kind of gay-friendly. Um, so pretty well, I'd say uh, there's not a single place on the continent where you could not find uh, some kind of discreet gay scene. Interesting. And that scene, uh, you know, it's often manifests as kind of a Western-looking and uh, aspiring to some of the ideals of uh, the individual sexual um, freedom and, and this and that. But it's also grounded in local idioms in many ways. I'm just curious when it came down to, because I was you know told you know a lot of us are giving some some history and um, you know again sometimes the the information um, may kind of be skewed in a way <laughs> uh, because so, the, so, so sometimes it makes it a little bit hard to what exactly it is to believe when Christianity was introduced. Um, what pretty much was that? In your opinion, was Christianity something that was the intent on giving or or, provi- or giving Africa something to more benefit themselves, or or with your history and with the things that you've actually um, explored about Africa, what exactly did you find that what Christianity really did to Africa? Um, okay, so um, just let's separate the Ethiopia out. For now, and uh, and uh, Egypt and Nubia, part of Sudan, those were all Christianized like long, long, long back, and straight from kind of uh, Palestine, not to European missionaries. So we'll separate that out. So we're talking like uh, the large chunk of Africa where um, there was no Christianity when Europeans first arrived, and so I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, the first European Christians in Africa had kind of mixed motives, to say the least. You know, these were Portuguese, and they had uh, an interest in the slave trade, right, from their point of view. So this is uh, and the thinking of the time. You know, they're looking at Africans and saying, man, these people are are savages, right? They had this judgment um, for whatever reasons. And they figured the only way we can make these people into civilized people um, is to Christianize them. And we might have to use force to do that. We might have to capture them and enslave them uh, to make them better people. That was the kind of thinking uh, that was going on. And um, 
there were missionaries who advocated and actually participated in uh, slave raiding and slave trading in those early years. We're talking like the 1500s, especially in like the Angola, uh, yeah, what's now Angola. Um, but interestingly enough, in that context, uh, all of it, and the Portuguese encourages these wars among Africans to generate slaves, right? And they, they exploited this. Then they got the slaves, threw some holy water on them, turned them into Christians, and um, they could have their you know, consciences uh, solved. Um, but what I find really, really interesting is that um, uh, in some cases, Africans saw Christianity as uh, potentially something that could help them fight this, right? And there's an amazing case, uh, which I talked about in um, the um, uh, sexuality and um, uh, the rethinking homophobia book there. Yes. Um, Sexuality and human rights. Um, so a, uh, a female leader who conforms to that model I, I spoke of, where um, she claimed to be possessed by a powerful uh, male spirit, and who happened to be a Christian saint, and she she says, and then we're talking like 1701 or something like that, um, and she was possessed by this Saint Anthony. It was so that. Italian, uh, but she claimed he was black, and that Jesus was black, and using with the voice of the saint that was in her, she rallied her people to unite to fight the Portuguese and, and the slave trading. And um, you know they they made a lot of success. Um, they almost uh, drove the Portuguese out. Unfortunately, they caught her and burned her at the stake. Oh wow! Uh, but yeah, it was just tough. <laughs> my point is that uh, uh, those were rough and tough days. Yeah, uh, so um, my point is that it worked both ways. That uh, the Europeans, in some cases, used Christianity as a means to get the political power over uh, Africans and to exploit them, even enslave them. But Africans also saw there are some aspects of Christianity that could help them unite and. Uh, Make a common cause to fight against these uh, oppressors, and um, over time, I think um, when the real, you know, colonialism spread from the coastal areas and slave trade was ending, missionaries moved throughout the continent, and they they did believe that uh, bringing the, the Christian message would um, improve the lives of Africans. It would make them happier and better people. They, I think, they sincerely believe that. We're talking now the 19th century, and um, and again, they thought sometimes it might be necessary to bring in the colonial state as a means to impose a peace, you know, uh, because there was slave trading happening um, among Africans. And uh, and so the Christian missionaries, in, in many cases, advocated the expansion of colonialism in order to pacify the region. Then they could bring in education, they could bring in, you know, health care and all that kind of good stuff. Um so I, I believe they were sincere, and um, after you know initial skepticism, I mean I would say generally Africans were saying, well, why should we take someone some foreign religion? We have got our own, right? But um, I think the early missionaries started to show results. They built schools, they built hospitals, and uh, and people who were skeptical were saying, hey, maybe there's something in this that. Um, that could help us, and and uh, through the 20th century, Africans used Christianity as uh, as their own. Wow, wow. So, wow, and this is a, this is actually pretty interesting. So, when it came down to 
Yeah, when it's the slavery, you know, um, particularly on Mahoma, when it comes to uh, uh, same-sex relationships at this particular time, was there any documentation that, that shows uh, how slave traders also had to deal with this as an issue? Um, there's a little bit, um, but not so much in the slave trade that you're thinking about. That is across the Atlantic. The European slave traders were interested in mostly in men who could come across and work in plantations for commercial profit. Um, so um, they did discover, and I'm talking like the early days in the 16th century, 1500s, 1600s, uh, even 1700s, uh, in those shipments of mostly men across the Atlantic or once they landed in the Americas. Um, they did find cases of uh, male-male relations and uh, prosecuted them. I was just reading the other day, uh, so the, the Portuguese, like the Spanish, had a, a Catholic Inquisition, right? They were trying to impose a, a moral uh, regime on society. And, uh, yeah, the, the Portuguese weren't as, as brutal as the Spanish in that sense, but um, they did... Um, they did catch cases of they call it the nefarious sins of African um, slaves transported to the Americas where they were um, they were punished by uh, yeah oh, wow. to that. So, yeah yeah there are cases that's that's early cases there uh, but they weren't interested in um, uh, you know African men as sex objects but that was gotcha but there was another big slave trade across the Sahara and across the Indian Ocean. So it wasn't as big as the transatlantic one, but it was pretty big. And uh, that one, they were more interested in slaves, not for commercial production, but to be incorporated into families. Uh, so that a lot of that slave trade was female, uh, young women being exported into North Africa, into Arabia, into Iran, Persia, and those... Uh, African girls and women would become part of, uh, they would become slaves within rich households in uh, the Middle East, as we call it. And um, those slaves weren't working on plantations so much, but doing domestic labor. And they could be concubines, little sexual uh, slaves, uh, who could uh, graduate. So in, under Islam, if a female slave gives birth, uh, that child is free. And often the mother then would become uh, freed as well and could become a, a wife and incorporated into the family. So um, uh, sexuality was part of that trade going to the Middle East. And a significant part of that included uh, a trade in eunuchs. So these are uh, men who are emasculated. And uh, same thing, they come into households in uh, Egypt or wherever um, to, um, to be household employees. Wow, wow. And in, in some cases, uh, to be sexual objects as well. Wow. So when it comes, I'm just, I am kind of curious when it comes to, uh, even before slavery, you know, became to, uh, to be a huge issue uh, within Africa, the positions of those who were of same-sex relationships, were there any evidence that many of them were highly regarded or or had leadership positions prior to? Uh, yes. So, 
uh, mentioned that case, that oral tradition of um, a woman with a male spirit yes. um, going back to 1700. That was kind of the norm. Like, you would have the chief or the king of the, the um, uh, you know, these were small political units in those days. And it was the norm that that leader, that male leader, would have a female bodied person with a male ancestral spirit in as the the main kind of uh, advisor, uh, a very important political position. So that woman, uh, speaking with the voice of uh, male authority, this ancestral spirit, was the one who called the shots. You know, the king would have to listen to her. And she, of course, uh, would never marry uh, a man. And she might have, she might marry um, uh, a young uh, girl. Um, uh, but okay, we don't know. Did they actually have sex? We don't know that, right? Uh, but right. we just know that right. there were these honored positions of people who did not marry and have children. They were considered to be um, extremely important political figures. And the same in other parts of West Africa, the other way around. I mentioned eunuchs, right? So these are men who are um, emasculated. Uh, They were, in many cases, so they're slaves, but they weren't given, uh, they weren't treated like chattel. They were actually promoted into high positions in political office. Often uh, the top royal kind of uh, uh, official. They could also be leaders in in uh, in war. Um, so um, yes, does that answer your question? <laughs> but again, the point is we don't know. Uh, we don't have uh, evidence to say, oh yes, these people uh, were homosexual in the modern sense. No, not at all. Just that they did not conform to the heteronormative uh, expectations, and no one said that's terrible. So, honored people, that's their role in society. How far back does it show um, same-sex relationships existed? How I mean, how many years within Africa? How far back would you would you go? Okay, well, in in my case, uh, so in Zimbabwe, among uh, the many other wonders of the place, you know, they um, they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of archaeological sites around the country where the so-called uh, the Bushmen, the people who lived there, the I guess we call them indigenous population, before the, um, um, the present-day inhabitants, so the black folk, moved there. Um, there were these indigenous people who lived uh, in the rocks and hills and caves, um, and they left these paintings. So most people say they disappeared from Zimbabwe about 2,000 years ago. Uh, they moved farther west into the desert or south and, and this and that. So, but so they've got these paintings all over the place. And um, there is a certain scholar who identified a number of them, and, and so I didn't find these myself, but um, I'm relying on this other um, scholar of Bushman art who found cases of... Uh, very obvious depictions of same-sex relations on these cave walls painted 2,000 years ago. So, um, yeah. Wow. You know, I, you know, I did remember seeing something on a rock that uh, of the Bushmen, and that actually 
it, it does appear that they were engaging in uh, sexual activity on on these on these paintings. Am I right? Uh, yes, and I mean it's not uh, realistic to a Western eye of uh, the depictions of the shapes of people and animals. I'm sort of relying on the expertise of someone who's looked at these things uh, for decades and decades and say these are the traditions that we know this represents. Uh, this and this, 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 right? So they're not uh, realistic art, but looking at them, it's hard not to say, okay, that looks like, um, you know, that guy's got his penis between the legs of that guy, or in the anus. It looks like it, right? Yes. Uh, and it fits with the, so the one picture I'm thinking of right off the top of my head, it's pretty clear. It shows the one, um, kind of the, um, uh, the top is depicted. Uh, in white, and the, the bottom is black. And there has a long tradition in Bushman art. The white symbolized something, um, uh, spirit possession, state of spirit possession. So the top is communicating this spiritual uh, power to the bottom. Wow. Wow. So, if we kind of fast forward to today, um, we kind of sometimes believe that um, the African culture really, you know, truly keeps their culture, keeps their history um, as, as something that they really hold and treasure, as many other countries do, and many other, many other Caribbeans do. Um, but um, is it appear to be that something, uh, when it comes to this particular portion of history, is it has been, like in many other countries, suppressed in many ways? Uh, yes and politicized uh, and uh, yeah it's uh, it's been definitely um, uh, let me give the case okay uh, a specific case so there's uh, Uganda I guess has gotten a lot of press because of the anti-homosexuality law that was there for a while um, interestingly the, the last king before Pre, uh, before colonialism, um, was implicated in a kind of big scandal, right? Uh, he was, um, uh, at that time, so we're talking 1880s or so, there were Muslims in the country, there were Christians in the country trying to win him over to their side, right? The different religions are trying to catch souls, I guess. And, and this guy, uh, Mutesa, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Mwanga, he was kind of playing the one side against the other, trying to get advantage, and he had some Christians in his uh, in his royal uh, entourage, um, and he had some Muslim advisors, and trying to say, how can I get the best and exploit these foreigners and see what I can get from my people? Um, then at one point, he, uh, he used his royal, his uh, kingly authority, and said, you know, I, I, I feel like having sex with you. <laughs> and that's, that was not unusual. And he pointed to some uh, this um, page at the court of Christian, and that Christian young man said no, and um, and this enraged the king, and he uh, uh, had all these Christian pages um, executed Whoa. because they refused to give in to his desire to have them as um, sex objects, and so then what happened in the the historical writing. So after that, you know, this big um, this atrocity happened, and then the British got involved, and they invaded the country and took it over as a colony. Um, 
so what happened in the the history books and the way this was uh, this incident was discussed. Okay, the Christians had this as an example of look at these savage Africans, you know, um, the king exploiting the uh, in a perverse way the sexuality of these young men and then having them killed. They took that as an example of African savagery that justified colonialism. Ah, but then, okay. yeah, yeah, right. But then, um, you know, the Ugandan nationalists were saying in, in the period of colonialism, say no, this guy was an example of African resistance against colonialism because, in fact, he did. He tried to resist the British. Um, so he organized some armed resistance that was ultimately failed. So that whole history of his exploitation and uh, execution of these uh, people was sort of hush-hushed. No, we're not going to talk about that. We'll talk about his role as a military leader in a failed resistance against British colonialism. So that's what kind of young Ugandans learned for the longest time. Um, and there's a shrine there actually to him in, uh, uh, not to him, but to um, to the, the martyrs. Uh, they're called the Christian martyrs. That doesn't mention the sex angle at all, um, but it puts the uh, Mwanga the the king at the time as a kind of uh, heroic figure, uh, tragically uh, lost to British colonialism. Um, but now it's changing, right? Now that this history is coming out and people are saying, oh, look, we need to talk about this angle as well. Um, it's becoming uh, politicized in a different way. Gotcha. So, yeah, gotcha. people uh, people remember history, but it's always, it changes, right? Every generation remembers history differently from the one before. True. That is true. Man, so when it comes down to this information, I see other historians coming out and writing other books and things of that nature in regards to the history and how far back uh, sexual fluidity was with really truly within Africa. Uh, do you think that it's now beginning to uh, be begin to pierce its head out in terms of what, what it really was in terms of the truth, or is still going to take some time before people really grasp hold of the history of Africa and sexual fluidity and homosexuality? Well, um, I mean, I'm optimistic. I think I look at this, the scene right now, the academic scene, and I see a lot of young African scholars taking this up, right? So part of the problem, and I'm part of it myself, is who did the first round of research in this way, you know? It's not Africans in the most part, right? It's, it's um, people like myself. So I'm Canadian. I landed in Zimbabwe. And, uh, I thought, oh, um, this looks like a good research question. And I started on it, right? So that allows people there in Zimbabwe to say, okay, this is this guy from Canada doing this research and we don't believe it. But what's happened is, you know, I, I had some students and uh, trained them and then others started local Zimbabweans start picking this up and starting to publish. And then it gets harder and harder for people to say, you know, it's just uh, Europeans are doing this research or Canadians or Americans or whatever. Um, when Africans themselves are doing research and publishing, and it gets harder to say, you know, it's, uh, it's not indigenous. And I see that happening a lot. There's been some amazing African scholars who are uh, getting this... Uh, this information out there. Oh, wow. 
So, okay. um, yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's, to me, it's a very positive thing. But it's a difficult moment in Africa, like it is in the States. I'm sure you have a kind of pushback from, uh, from people who don't want social change. They don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. And they don't care what the so-called truth is. Uh, they'll just shout fake news, right? And, and that's there in Africa too, right? So, um, and people are um, stressed that the economy hasn't been going well, and, and they're looking for easy answers, and they're looking to blame easy scapegoats. So, you know, we're kind of working against uh, uh, powerful forces that do not want to know the truth. Wow. Wow. And so, well, I mean, now that you mentioned that, has it be, when it comes to publishing and getting people to be more aware of that. Um, how much of that pushback have you truly seen personally within your within your your works? Um, in my works, not so much, you know, because well, I am writing in a from a very privileged position, right? Uh, um, and I'm writing at a level of, for the most part, it's academic scholarships, and the hope is that that will kind of trickle down. Um, and get picked up by more popular media. And that's happened to some extent. Uh, and there's been a few instances where I have put stuff out there and it's been, uh, it hasn't got accepted um, because it was embarrassing to the, uh, to the host. So I'm thinking one time in Nigeria. But uh, for the most part, I think uh, I personally haven't experienced the, uh, great hardship. I have published mostly in North America and uh, and South Africa. So uh, I'm trying to get something published in Zimbabwe. I don't know. It's a different... They got rid of that old guy there who was the most vocal homophobe. So things are changing. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. But um, yeah, for young Africans coming up, there are ways they can they can get things published now. Yeah, it's, it's Change for the better, if you ask me. Okay, okay, because I did have um, recently. I had um, one author who actually uh, wrote the first Nigerian gay memoir, and okay. he actually was talking about. Uh, actually, the name of the book is called "Lives of Great Men" uh, by Mr. Uh, Frankie Edelzin. Uh, Edelzin. Um, he actually wrote the first gay Nigerian memoir, and he was talking about. Uh, work his works to try to get the book to be um, distributed within Nigeria, and it does mm-hmm. appear to be a big, a big to do, <laughs> a big to do yeah. to get it in these countries. I mean, is it basically because is there a, any particular law, or is it because the the organizations who are there uh, are just are totally against anything? of uh, homosexuality to where any books they will not distribute or what what is it really when it comes to such 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 a, a movement to be against this um well each country will be a bit different i i don't know the exact case in nigeria but uh it's probable there are places where to have laws against uh, they use language like homosexual propaganda and um that might be the case in in Nigeria, uh, but a publishing company also is going to want to be careful because uh, 
you know, in the in the atmosphere where you have kind of churches and you've got um, imams and some kind of radical new churches all competing for each other, how easy it is for them to whip up uh, hysteria. Oh, look at that publishing house. They've put out this. And uh, it's a bit of a business risk for a company to take that on, right? I would say in, in most cases that's the main worry rather than state uh, direct uh, repression. But that may apply in, in some cases. Um, probably the new media, the new social media, the online stuff is offering a, an amazing opportunity uh, to get information out as well and for people to connect uh, in ways that they couldn't before. So that's, again, another uh, positive thing, to circulate uh, uh, articles that are published in the West, for example, and to get that moving around in the electronic form, which uh, is happening a lot, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, you know, one thing's for sure, I know that, you know, we've, we're going heading towards the end of our hour here, but one thing's for sure, I would definitely love to, to invite you back to the show because I, I think it's important for people to kind of get an understanding of one, their history and, and this part of the history is definitely uh, the sexual, the sexual aspects where people get to understand that they are definitely not wrong, but it is much more deep into the history of their their ancestors than what most people are going to tell them because you know, they're not going to get this information very easily without people like yourself really divulging themselves into this topic and to really try to pull it out there. So I do thank you so much for coming on the show and kind of giving us a good idea in terms of, you know, the history of it, how far back does it really go within Africa? But now the, some of the books that I'm just going to name off some of the books again, uh, again, uh, what I actually on, on Amazon is located on Amazon. You can be able to pull it up sexuality and social justice in Africa. Um, you also have sexual, sexual diversity in Africa, politics, theory, and citizenship, um, heterosexual Africa, question mark. Um, and also you have, uh, welcome to uh, just a great, which I didn't mention before. Welcome to Great and Edendale: Histories of Environment, Health, and Gender in the African City. You was also part of that, and you also wrote that book as well. Um, yeah. And also unspoken facts. Unspoken facts. So. Oh yeah, that one I did with uh, my friends in Zimbabwe, the gays and lesbians of Zimbabwe. Ah, unspoken. Really, unspoken facts. Yeah, yeah. So we we uh, we published that one. Actually, that's kind of interesting because. Uh, um, we published that uh, a North American publisher, but distributes it in in uh, Southern Africa. So it was there in Zimbabwe. There oh, were a thousand copies. Nice, yeah. nice. So, what would be a great book for a person who's interested? What would be a great book to start with to to kind of gain this knowledge and uh, history? So, I guess the uh, the. Uh, the sexuality and social justice one is written for a less academic audience. It covers a wide history, so it's not just Southern Africa. It's the whole continent. It's got uh, some discussion of Islam in there, and um, you know, it takes it takes the really big picture, um, and so that and it's you know I haven't got footnotes and this and that, but um, it's all uh, it's all grounded in you know high level research. But okay. it's written for a more popular audience, and it's uh, cheaper than some of the other ones. The academic volumes tend to be, uh, you know, a bit expensive. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Well, that's a great book to start with. And like I said, I'll definitely, what I normally do with any of uh, my guests, I normally make sure that all their information is uh, definitely uh, put out there. So it's directly underneath in terms of the notes for the podcast. So that everyone knows exactly who they are, uh, what type of works they've done, and to, to start to work themselves. And it's a, it's a good little platform for that. Um, if there's any, like I said, I definitely want to at least kind of start a series of unraveling uh, some of the history, uh, especially dealing with homosexuality in different portions of the, the world, um, especially dealing with when it comes to African or African American or people of color, that is, uh, the history. So I definitely want to kind of eventually start a series of this. So I do appreciate you again, appreciate you again coming on the show and being part of Brother Speed Podcast. Thank you so much. It really means a lot to me. So. Yeah, you're most welcome, and thanks for reaching out. Thank you, thank you. Well, this is Chris from Brother Speed Podcast. Again, signing off. Have a wonderful day. Okay, cheers.